some of the classrooms that have used our Afghanistan curriculum in the past, I played this little word association game with the students before they got started. And I asked, what are the first words that come to your mind when I say Afghanistan? And right out of the gate, pretty much every time, words like Taliban, suicide bombers, and war usually pop up first. Another words mentioned were losers, terrorists, ragheads, and a few other equally depressing ones. But afterward, I explained to them that if they played this game 40 years earlier, the word Afghanistan might prompt some completely different responses, such as tourism, poets, hospitality, or even hippies. And what few Americans realize is not that long ago, Afghanistan was once this kind of groovy country. For thousands of years, it was a moderate Islamic nation. It was at the crossroads of Central Asia, home to ancient kingdoms along the Silk Road. In Afghanistan, it was legendary for arts and architecture, philosophers, poets, really rich in heritage. It had snow-capped mountains, people skied there, fertile valleys, vineyards, carpets, kebabs. It was also known for this kind of radical hospitality and this prime destination for especially European travelers. In the 60s and 70s, hippies streamed in from Europe on the famed hippie trail. It's kind of in search of recreational enlightenment, but uh, Afghanistan was just this chill place. And women there, they were educated, they were employed in prominent positions, very fashionable, short skirts, bouffant hair, the whole the whole nine yards of the 60s and 70s. In 1979, however, the Russians invaded to expand their Soviet empire, and it catapulted Afghanistan into the next 37 years of straight chaos. And the Afghan people have been caught in the middle of one outsider's agenda after another. Not everybody realizes this. From the warring warlords of neighboring countries to Taliban takeovers, which, by the way, the Taliban came from Pakistan, to al-Qaeda hideouts, and by the way, bin Laden was a Saudi using Afghanistan as his hideout. And since 2001, the U.S. government and NATO and other government countries have been putting in troops, pulling them out, putting them back in, pulling them back out again, and admittedly struggling to come up with any really creative strategies that will create a lasting stability. But meanwhile, here in the U.S., between the veterans with PTSD and the taxpayer expenses and the endless reports of wasted military expenditures, contractor graft, and absolutely no path to victory in sight, American people, they're burned out on Afghanistan, writing it off as a black hole of despair. And it's not uncommon to hear people just want to throw their hands up and walk away saying, this is not fixable, it's not our problem, let them figure it out. And it sounds, sounds sort of rational to say that, but the reality is the world we live in today, we're a pretty inter interconnected place, and like it or not, we are in this together. I kind of compare it to one of those dysfunctional family reunions that kind of drive you nuts, but you're stuck together wh whether you like it or not. And I remember reading this report about how 70% of the Afghan population is under the age of 25 years old. And I'm like, what? 70%? Like, how is that possible? So upon further investigation, first of all, culturally, Afghans typically have large families, especially in rural areas where kids are your labor force, much like how it was here in the U.S. 100 years ago. 
But impoverished war-torn countries, well, they don't have family planning or birth control. And if you think about that level of poverty and that level of lack of health care facilities in impoverished war countries of this nature for 37 years, it makes sense that the mortality rate is around 48 years old because life is really hard there. People don't live long. So then I'm thinking, in this latest post-9-11 chapter of the conflict where the U.S. is involved in Afghanistan from 2001, or at least involved very actively, uh, then every 16-year-old Afghan teen has spent their entire life with American military as their point of reference for the United States. Meanwhile, every 16-year-old here in the U.S. has spent their entire lives growing up with this nonstop war news, another explosion in Afghanistan, so all Afghans must be terrorist mentality. So there's these two groups growing up simultaneously in these silos. And this is significant if we believe that how young people feel about themselves, no matter where they live, determines how they engage with the world around them. And what those young people collectively envision for their future is a pretty good gauge of what's to come. So if 70% of the Afghan population is under the age of 25, I'm thinking that these, I call them Afghan millennials, uh, these Afghan millennials are probably the greatest influencers of what is to come by their sheer numbers alone. And it's also a good bet that American teens are going to be dealing with these same issues when they're adults as well. So these kids growing up right now, whether they realize or not, they're going to be having to work together on some level in the future, whether they're warring with each other or becoming trade partners. You know, these these kids are going to be the, the ones in the driver's seat. So my question is, my burning question is, who are these young Afghan influencers and how do they see the world right now? What motivates them and what do they know about America? And do they think we're the good guys there to help them? We always think we're the good guys. <laughs> or do they have negative names for us as well? So back in 2009, I made my first of several trips to Afghanistan with the sole mission of trying to understand the world from these Afghan millennials' point of view. And I got to know a lot of them, from illiterate and displaced kids to academics and scholars, homeless street kids, hipster skateboarders, and even rock band musicians. And it turns out there is a lot more that we don't see in the media about who Afghan people are, uh, like skateboarders and rock stars. So there is no cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all Afghan kid. But one thing they all have in common is they have never known anything but war. Their parents can hardly recall life before war either. And after 37 straight years of chaos, there are no stories of the good old days for these kids to hear. Some of them resent American soldiers patrolling their streets in tanks, kind of elusive in their heavily fortified convoys and living in walled-off compounds and bases. They have a feeling of kind of being violated by this outside presence that is got their clear agenda that they're not included in on. Others resign themselves to the fact that without the U.S., they're going to lose the ground that they've gained if the Taliban takes over again. Girls are going to get kicked out of school. Women are going to be forced back to the, the Stone Age and ruled with terror. But no matter which side of the issue they're on, all of them are, I would dare say, livid about the civilian casualties and the collateral damage 
from the rogue soldiers who will have willfully murdered innocent people, as well as the culturally oblivious gaffes, such as copies of the Quran being accidentally thrown into a bonfire at a military base one time. And they all see themselves as this country on the bottom of the world, victims at the mercy of foreign militaries, foreign aid groups, foreign government agendas. They have no clue that they came from this land of kings with a glorious past and major cultural contributions. Or that tourists used to come and shop in their stores and stand in awe of their landscapes. And I'm thinking... Like, how could these kids make Afghanistan great again with no point of reference as to what great looks like? In 2013, I got this interesting sort of mysterious email from this guy at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. He was looking for an organization that could help rehabilitate teenagers being detained in a JRC, which is a juvenile rehabilitation center, kind of like juvie in uh, this volatile province along the Pakistan border where a lot of really troubled kids are being detained. And they're, <clears throat> they're trapped in this cycle of poverty and hopelessness. And these Afghan kids are just the most vulnerable to insurgent groups who prey upon them and just use them to do their dirty work. And I'm thinking, in a way, these Afghan millennials might have the most power and influence of all because they're young there's a lot of them. They're already in trouble, and they have nothing left to lose. So my team, my American partner, Andy, and our Afghan colleagues, <clears throat> who we, we had worked with, with ver- on various projects over the years, and I were invited to bring our leadership training methodology to this remote JRC in Host province. And we helicoptered out of Kabul across the country on this World Food Program flight headed that way. And... Arriving there, I'll admit it was unnerving as we entered this stark, lifeless, mostly empty cement structure just covered in razor wire. And inside, 19 teenage boys sat on these straw mats in the middle of the room, and they looked as lifeless and empty as everything else around them. As we started making conversation and just kind of, you know, who are you, what's your name, and just just introducing ourselves and kind of getting to know them, we were struck by how isolated they were, both physically, mentally, spiritually. We asked them if they knew where they were, and some were only able to identify their province or their city, unaware that Afghanistan was even a country. And some of the kids, they, they were there because they had made suicide bombing attempts, indoctrinated by insurgents that were caught trying to blow up government vehicles for the Taliban. When we asked them what they knew of Americans, you know, at first they explained that they hated Americans. and They looked at Andy and I with these just resolved glares. But later they admitted that they weren't even sure what Americans were or what America was. Just totally un- unaware of like what the world, how it's even organized. But over the course of just two weeks of daily visits, our team, we, we basically circumnavigated their entire beings in existence. We introduced them to new concepts and information they were totally unaware of. They discovered world maps, globes, and planets. Some had no idea the world was round. Uh, this isolation, they, had, they learned about the Silk Road, famous Afghan doctors, philosophers, important contributors to history from Afghanistan that they had no idea of. <clears throat> um, they learned how electricity works, how the internet works. 
They participated in activities that we created that challenged their points of view. They trained in Taekwondo. And uh, basically addressing these human needs for knowledge, connectedness, structure, and purpose, they started to find their voice. But most importantly, as they gradually began to trust themselves, they began to trust us as well. And they began to vent their pain with people who would simply sit and listen. And I remember this one 14-year-old kid who very quietly shared his pain with us, just looking down at the, the straw mat under him as he spoke. And the thing was, as he told his story, we realized his pain did not come from being incarcerated in a JRC. And it didn't come from getting arrested for plotting to blow up a police car after the Taliban convinced him that he'd be a martyr if he committed suicide. And the pain didn't even come from the fact that the reason that he got caught was because his little sister accidentally found the explosives hidden under his bed and they blew up in her hands by mistake. But the actual pain he was experiencing, it came from his family members being killed when U.S. soldiers got the wrong target information in a mistaken night raid on his home and just upended his life and sent him spiraling into this blind, self-destructive rage. And everything else just unrolled from there. And on the second to last day of our training, just as we were getting ready for the, the day, we were kind of getting ready to be done for the day, several of the, these inmate kids came up to me and they had these serious expressions. Like I could tell <laughs> they had something on their mind. And they said they knew that we had to leave, but they wanted to keep learning. And they also wanted to become part of our team when they got released. They wanted to teach this program to kids in other JRCs to help them and to recruit them to the team as well. <clears throat> they understood. They really understood that they were the ones who needed to rebuild their country into something better. And they weren't talking about how the government needed to do things or the military needed to stop doing this or that. They, they really saw themselves in this driver's seat. And I'm thinking, yeah, make Afghanistan great again. Like, this is how we do it. And on the inside, I'm kind of freaking out, though, as they're saying all this, because I'm really, I'm ecstatic that the program had this much impact. And I just kind of want to jump up and down and hug them. You know, I'm so excited. But, you know, that wouldn't be cool because I'm in this really serious situation. And, and I need to, we need to proceed, you know, very, very methodically and carefully with this. And foreign women don't hug Afghan men anyway. And on the outside, though, I play it cool because I got to stall for time and I want to figure out what the options are with the team, of where can we go from here. We also need to make sure they're serious and they're not going to flake out because they're still young people after all. And that's what happens. So I said very calm. I said, okay, we're going to have an official meeting about this tomorrow. We'll discuss it. Here's what you'll need to do to prepare. First, after we leave, you gather all the guys who are interested in this idea and you tell them that we're going to have a meeting in the morning when we get here about putting together a special team, an elite team. And then to help them invest and create more ownership, I said, as a group, you're going to need to create a name for this new team because you're going to be the leaders of it. And it can't be just a good name. It has to be an awesome name. And outline some of your goals and then finally elect a spokesman who's going to be your team representative. And I figured this is going to get them started while I talk to the rest of the group. We'll figure out what's even possible. We don't even know. We're out of, we're in uncharted territory, but the boys agreed. So that night, Andy and I and our Afghan colleagues and I, we talked about the impact of the program 
and the possibility of having these guys work as trainers to help other kids in their shoes because like who could who could be better and you know from what we'd seen in just one in one JRC and there's JRCs in every province all across the country the amount of pain that these kids are saddled with is so so vast it is incomprehensible this pain is the source the source of instability in Afghanistan i am convinced and it's pain that cannot be reached by foreign aid dollars it cannot be healed by us foreign policy and the question of how many more military troops is it going to take to solve the problem of instability in afghanistan it's really not even the question to be asking at all um the next morning though we we all filed in back into the jrc ready for this big meeting and all the guys were sitting there just in perfect rows straight focused this is their first ever real meeting of their lives and uh, i loved how serious they were we took our seats with them i opened my laptop to take notes i said i'm going to be the secretary of this meeting and uh and then i explained what a secretary was and how meetings operate this one guy stood up he introduced himself as the spokesman of the team and he said after much discussion they have chosen to name their team hamdard and i'm like okay hamdard i don't know what it means and but as the guy said it the afghan team just gasped they like kind of suck air in like their oh, this electric jolt ran through the room and my translator uh colleague he whispers to me he said dina hamdard it means to feel someone's pain like a brother and help them move through it together. And I'm like, "Wow, we don't even have a word that cool in English. I mean, we have empathy and we have compassion, but hamdard means empathy, compassion and action together in a way that is extraordinary." And at that moment, we knew we had discovered what it would take to make Afghanistan great again and things were just about to get exciting. If you want to hear the rest of the story, give us your email address. We'll send out the next episode when ready or just check back on the website for the next podcast. In the meantime, the question that I have for the GSD operatives is, you've studied how societies change over time and the rise and fall of empires, but I want to know what are your thoughts on what it takes to make a society great again? And how important is the influence of teenagers on the rise or fall? of a great society which direction do you think your generation in america is headed and why i'm dina fessler from the gsd hayloft we'll be back <laughs>